So there's, there's a range of choices you have. You can abandon your previous identity and embrace a different one, abandon it and, and not embrace any at all. Or you can realize that what I thought was essential to my identity is that in fact not, and I can abandon that part of it without abandoning my identity. And that's, you, there is, this is one of those, there isn't a, this is where it, it's still, it's personal. There isn't one answer that fits all. There isn't a principle I can give you that is going to solve all of these situations. In this last episode, we'll be looking at what the options are for those who have questioned their faith, had the cracks and the crisis, and are looking for some sort of resolution. In his book, Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stopped Working and What You Can Do About It, Brian McLaren asserts that there are four movements in a faith journey for those who seriously seek truth. Simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. Distinct from A.J. Swoboda's approach that we heard in episode two, McLaren acknowledges that the true complexities of faith are really overwhelming. Few evangelical instructors even reach a state of perplexity, which could be seen as deconstruction, and we'll see more about that in this episode. But I guess for now, I'll ask, can harmony even be found? Section one, open and relational. Yeah, I never really had, I mean, beyond like purity culture, I never really had like experienced a shit ton of trauma that a lot of people do. I mean, I do have some trauma around like being raised in evangelicalism, but like more or less, like, especially the music stuff was always really interesting to me. I really liked it. Um, But yeah, theologically, it just was like, wasn't working for me anymore. This is Mason Menega a seminarian, podcaster, and outspoken Twitter commentator who's, I mean, very funny. He talked with me about the future of Christianity and a concept I really wanted to explore, process theology. We started with his take on deconstruction. Especially a lot of like the kind of, for lack of a better term, like ex-evangelical movement now. He talked to a lot of them, with the exception of a few, really, really just a few, a lot of them are like no longer Christian or whatever. And I think that's totally fine. I have no issue with that. Um, I think it's a super healthy process to leave it. But what I find really interesting is that they, the vast majority of them, they, ha- they started having these questions and doubts and whatever, and didn't have the resources to think through it within a Christian context and therefore left Christianity. Again, I have no issue with that. I'm not like an apologist for progressive Christianity. I don't give a shit. But (laughs) I find that interesting because my story is much different. And it's part of the reason why I think there's really a big difference between like the ex-evangelical experience and the, what I would consider a post-evangelical experience. Mm, Uh, I would say the vast majority of people within the the post-evangelical umbrella still identify in one shape or some way, shape or form as a Christian, I I very much am obviously that. Um, I think there's a lot of us, especially a lot of us under 30, that just like, they end up leaving Christianity altogether. I think I'm, I'm weird in that, like you talk to a lot of like 
people who left evangelicalism in their, who are maybe, let's say in their thirties, yeah. a lot of them actually probably remain Christian. If you're wondering how Mason, who is pretty young, is able to talk about all this, he does have a Master of Divinity and a Master of Arts in Theology from two different seminaries. Here's a little bit more about open and relational theology that I thought was a great intro. Please excuse the microwave noises as we were holding a very casual interview. I think it, it, it's kind of twofold. The first is that God and the world are completely open, meaning that all like possibilities in the future are possible um, and that the world has not been predetermined. So anything could happen. Other thing is that the God, the God and the world are completely relational from all the little particles that make up all of the universe to something as grandiose as God. They're all in relationship with one another. So two reasons why I think that matters. First off with the open part. To me, again, with kind of the ethical lens, I really think through a lot. To me, if all things are possible, then the things that are happening in this world right now the systems of oppression that happen in this world right now do not have the final say. We, we have the capacity to write our future because the future hasn't already been predetermined. I think that's really hopeful uh, and extremely liberating. The second for the relational piece is that if all things are in relationship with one another, including God, there really matters the way that we relate with one another. Mm. When I throw this, when I threw this piece of plastic earlier away, that hurts God, and it really matters that I did that. Uh, so all of that's to say, like, I think the the openness of the world in process theology and the relationality are really really important, um, especially as it relates to how we relate to the world and how we can dismantle and abolish systems of oppression. Although I grew up in a Christian household, I was never really exposed to perspectives like this. I had always been told that everything was in God's control and our influence on God was actually pretty negligible. We'll talk about someone else here about that shortly, but Mason did share an interesting take on what the evangelical future might look like. If there's any potential for a sort of strong progressive Christian movement, it will be led by people who left evangelicalism. It will not be people who grew up mainly. So as much as I don't think evangelicalism as an institution will die, I think there will be millions of individuals who will become so disillusioned by evangelicalism that they will be radicalized to some form of progressive leftist politics and theology. And one particularly hot take. As long as white supremacy exists, evangelicalism will. As I mentioned, I wanted to talk with another open and relational theologian, and that is Tom Ord. The church, and in our case, it was the Church of the Nazarene, was central to our family life. Uh, my parents were board members at that church for 40 plus years. They ran lots of things, you know, led choirs, Sunday school classes. Um, and 
I was there an awful lot. And it was an important, it has been a really important uh, part of my life, my growing up. I uh, like to say I accepted Jesus into my heart many times as a kid. Um, and in youth group, I was not one of those people looking in from the outside. I was at the center and the leader. So I wasn't like a fence sitter. I was gung-ho in the midst of things. The classic Christian bona fides. Uh, I went to college. I ended up in religion because I just figured that's what I was cared the most about. And, you know, I did a lot of studying. I read books and I thought that uh, I needed to bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ or whatever the language we used at the time. And that meant uh, joining Campus Crusade for Christ. It meant uh, witnessing in bars and on beaches and on mm -hmm. airplanes. And, uh, you know, we were we thought of ourselves as hardcore Jesus freaks. Uh, um, and during that time, um, I started to see that my efforts weren't as fruitful as I expected. Hmm. Uh, people weren't just, you know, up and changing their lives immediately <laughs> and becoming like uh, us. We've heard stories like this before of intense commitment, but I do want to highlight that Tom's story starts to go a different direction than those in earlier episodes. Winter semester, I take a course in philosophy of religion. This particular course, it kind of turned my world upside down. I was reading really smart people who were not Christian, other faith traditions or no faith traditions, agnostics and atheists. And then the key moment. I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife. She was a religion major as well. Her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, I can't believe in God anymore. That was an intellectual thing. Like, you know, I wasn't rebelling because I wanted to have sex or, you know, mm -hmm. I, I hated my youth pastor or something like that. And um, I was in that state for not a whole long period of time, but uh, at least months. But I kept at this whole process of thinking through things. And I eventually came to think it was more plausible than not that there was a God. There were really two things that were at the heart of my deciding that I could believe in God again. One was I I thought life had to have ultimate meaning. Maybe I just wanted life to have ultimate meaning and um, belief in some kind of God seemed to ground that meaning. Mm -hmm. And the other was I knew that I ought to be a loving person and other people ought to love. And I couldn't imagine the source of that kind of intuition if there wasn't a God. We might call this deconstruction and reconstruction except the way i'm telling it sounds kind of quick and <laughs> i think almost everybody most people i know at least it takes them a while and my reconstruction took quite a while it's strange to say but actually going to atheism in one sense was helpful for me because I sort of just took everything out. I started from scratch yeah. and I said to myself, okay, what should I believe? What do I have grounds to believe? What seems plausible? Can I live my life as if 
love doesn't matter. Mm. I can't, I can't live that way. So if I can't live that way, then I probably ought to have some kind of way of thinking about reality and God in which love is going to play a role Mm -hmm. and kind of making those steps help me to construct the kind of views of God in life that I have now. During this reconstruction, Tom remained within the Christian tradition. He got married and and actually started looking for jobs as a youth pastor. And I remembered uh, interviewing at one particularly large church, and I liked the pastor. And he asked me what I thought of Jesus Christ. And uh, I was honest. (laughs) I said, well, I'm not sure he's divine or God, but um, I do want to follow him. Yeah. And I did not get that job. <laughs> Tom kept trying and did eventually land a job as a youth pastor. At that job, he soon realized that the church likely thought he believed different ideas than he actually did. He reached out to a philosophy professor for advice. He said, um, it may be that the people in your congregation are not at the same place that you are at. And it would not be kind to them to Mm. somehow try to bring them to where you are. It may be uh, the case that uh, you should in love, meet them where they are and uh, do your best to, you know, affirm the things that they believe that you can affirm. And I thought that was helpful advice. Tom worked for several years as a pastor and then went on to get additional schooling, starting with a Master's of Divinity from Nazarene Theological Seminary, and then... To Southern California, did my uh, another Master's and a PhD in Religion and Philosophy, and then went back to Massachusetts for my first job of teaching, three years in philosophy there. Then came to Idaho to teach at uh, Northwest Nazarene University. There, primarily theology, but some philosophy, for 15 years. Now I teach, uh, I do doctoral students online at a school that's based in Florida. During his time teaching, Tom faced a situation almost none of us will face for what we believe. I was laid off uh, five, six years ago in a big controversial thing at my institution. had to do with my Basically, my president thinking I was too liberal or, you know, too far out there and wanting to please conservative constituents. And I uh, had to go through a heresy trial. Oh. Which, uh, yeah, which I survived, but the president still wanted me out and figured out a backdoor way to lay me off. But that erupted in uh, the faculty giving him a no confidence vote. He resigned a month later. It was a big thing covered in news across the country. And um, they still didn't give me my job back, but I ended up uh, settling for a severance to try to find another job. So, yeah, I've been through a lot for the things I believe. So what is it exactly that Tom believes that's so problematic? As we heard from Mason, open and relational theology can be a little bit different but I wanted to dig into the specifics. Uh, We all do things a little bit differently. We think about love a little bit differently, but when you start with God's love, you're oftentimes going to be much more charitable to people who interpret Mm -hmm. things differently instead of having a, a rigid, this is the only way to interpret the Bible. If you start with love, you're going to be more open to diversity, racial, sexual, et cetera. You start with love. You're going to typically 
uh, think about God as a person in, in you know, relational kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of sort of implications. They aren't necessary entailments of love, but they're kind of implications that start to play out when you, you start with love as God's primary attribute. Most open and relational theologians don't believe in eternal conscious torment in hell. Mm-hmm. Some might be universalists. Some might be annihilationists. Some might believe in purgatory. I have my own view that I call relentless love that says God never gives up on anybody, but because we have free will, God can't guarantee that everyone's going to say yes. But so there's a, a variety of ways to think about the afterlife. It's just that I, I don't know any open relational person who believes in eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think there's good biblical warrant for it. And yeah. most biblical scholars would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it fits the idea of a loving God. The topic of eternal conscious torment brings us to one of the big issues at play, the problem of evil. Part of the reason I wanted to talk with Tom Ord is that he wrote an article in a book entitled God and the Problem of Evil. And in this article, which you'll hear me mention, he says he really does solve the problem. And a lot of that solutions through theology, like open and relational theology. You'll also see how it pertains to the questions of change that we talked about with Christina in the last episode. My apologies for how much I fumble through the question I'm trying to ask Tom. Part of my question is like, how did we get so set on the fact that God is unchanging? And I think that's the thing because that, again, you, you know, you kind of said in this article, you said you solve, you know, what you do solve the problem of evil, which is, I think, a huge reason why people deconstruct is that this is just not logical to have a God that we say we believe in and evil. Um, yeah. But I almost, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, how did this become such a like paradigm of, you know, or within the aspects of God that we have to believe this? And why is it so, why is it seen as so heretical? Yeah, you? well, I think there's two primary reasons. One's kind of philosophical and the other is psychological. Let me start with the psychological. I think a lot of people want something rock solid they can mm-hmm. put their life into, their belief structures, something, you know, and we call it foundationalism in philosophy. They want a foundation that that's sure and true and unchanging. And God is that unchanging thing. So that's one attraction. The other one that's philosophical comes from the way uh, people in ancient times understood perfection. And they thought to be perfect would be to be at the highest rung and any change in perfection could only be toward imperfection since God is perfect, the perfect being, then God must be unchanging in all respects. Mm-hmm. And I think that idea, I mean, even though in the piety of people, they thought God responded to them and, you know, they read the Bible and it said God repented and, and sort of in the, the common language of Christians, they talked about God changing in the academic structures of Aquinas, Augustine, mm-hmm. Luther, Calvin, etc. They had a God who is immutable in all respects. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what open and relational theology uh, says is that God is unchanging in nature, but God is an experiential being, and that experience changes. This is sometimes called uh, um, dipolar theism. I call it God's essence experience binate. There's a 
an aspect of God that is immutable and one that's mutable, changing and unchanging. Mm -hmm. And that helps me make sense of tons of things about love and life and scripture, etc. One other way this really reframes the conversation around Christian life and afterlife is in salvation. So salvation, from my perspective, and a lot of open relational theologians' perspective, is something that begins here and now. It has a very much this life focus. Mm -hmm. It means uh, overcoming habits and addictions. It means uh, changing the way we react to our families and partners. It means loving our enemies. It means working for a world in which you know, we combat uh, climate change and stand up for species. And a lot of the kind of things you think about Christians doing in this world to care for themselves and, and others, the kind of things that are in the Bible, frankly, of how we ought to live, that is what salvation is about. It's not primarily about going off to heaven when we die. Now, I do believe in heaven. I do believe in an afterlife. Most open and relational thinkers do believe in that. Uh, but we think that salvation isn't just a kind of escape hatch to get out of here. Salvation is a way of living well in the world. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. And we think we can start to experience it now when we change and transform ourselves and our world. In some respects, this position and outlook really just sounds awesome. Like who wouldn't want this? Isn't it great? But Tom acknowledges there's a lot that comes along with kind of adopting this perspective on theology and faith. Change occurs, but it takes time. It takes time for you to get over certain ideas and see the connections and the implications. And you have emotional connections to ideas that you don't even, even know consciously. Mm. And so, you know, things like saying God is sovereign, you know, man, I, did, I didn't want to say that in one sense because it implied to me that God was a controlling God and I believed in free will. And if God was sovereign, that means, you know, evil is what God either caused or allowed. That didn't sound right. But there's another side of me that thought, man, if I don't say God is sovereign, how can I be a Christian? Isn't that like essential? And so these kinds of things I was working through in my head, but also... I don't know, just experientially, they had to kind of play themselves out. And I see that's the case for others that I talk to, including my doctoral students. Mm. It takes them a while. They'll see some good ideas. They'll see the, the value in them, but their, their psychology takes a little time to catch up to those good ideas. Um, I direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology. And in our center, we have people from very liberal to very conservative, you know, yeah. we've got on the conservative side. I know one guy who's like a, you know, Republican pro gun kind of person. Oh, wow. um, and there are more liberal probably than conservatives mm -hmm. in the group, but there's a, a, a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And in part, it's because some of the more conservative people have an evangelical background that takes the Bible super seriously. And mm -hmm. the Bible portrays God as giving and receiving being yeah. moved, changing, uh, repenting, etc., And so they follow the logic of scripture to open theism or something yeah. quite like it. Now, oftentimes what happens is those people over time 
start to, I'll say, become more progressive because they uh, realize that some of the hermeneutical questions that they, they're asking can't be easily answered in a kind of a strict kind of way that mm-hmm. is characteristic of evangelicalism. Yeah. And so over time, a lot of those people become more progressive, but not all of them. Tom's more recent book is called simply God Can't. It discusses the idea of God's consistent character, but also what God does not do. He mentions that here. Yeah. Got, I get letters at least once a week from people who've read that book and it's changed their lives. Wow. Some of them are people who are survivors of abuse and now they have a reason to believe in God again. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've got letters from pastors who say they can pray now because this is the different way of thinking about God. So what does Tom think about the future of evangelicalism? Evangelicalism, I think, thrived on insularity, insular yeah. communities, mm-hmm. and in an increasingly connected and interrelated and informed world, that's really hard to do. Mm. It's hard to keep all your your kids under your wings as an evangelical, you might say. Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, I don't think the future of evangelicalism is a future in which it's going to grow. I think it's going to shrink drastically. What exactly replaces it, I don't know. Section 2. Hidden Questions We don't know the future of evangelicalism, and I think at this point I was starting to learn that that's okay. Although maybe my need for certainty was dissipating, I still wanted to see what other people were doing in light of these problems. I think a central place that will need to be addressed is what is scripture. The voice you hear is that of Mike Roth, a pastor out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, Especially within the evangelical tradition, because they're so convinced that it's infallible, that there's just no space to question. And questioning scripture then becomes like a lack of faith or heresy or whatever. And and, and there's, there's, there's an unquestioned belief system within the evangelical church that Uh, evangelical doctrine and tradition equate with like literal interpretation of scripture and church Mm -hmm. history. And that's just not true. This is similar to what we've heard earlier, the idea that biblicism is a key part of evangelical Christianity. Mike is a super appropriate voice to have weigh in on this, considering he has himself a PhD in biblical studies. He also has a somewhat traditional evangelical story. Typical evangelical story, right? So grew up in the church. I jumped through the hoops and went to youth group, small group, church on Sunday. And I went on all the retreats, but it was more my family's thing than my thing. I did it to not cause trouble and to not get in (laughs) trouble. And uh, then I ended up going on this mission trip to Mexico where really I looked at it more as like a vacation. (laughs) Uh, for international travel. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, And then that was my first encounter with real poverty. Mm. And it was my first encounter in like observing how this gospel had potential to impact lives. And I, I remember thinking to myself that I personally have never given this thing a shot. 
like I've grown up in it. It's kind of the air that I breathe, but I've never truly personalized it in a way where, you know, like this is my faith that I really care about. You know, in my senior year of high school, I just took kind of my evangelical brethren faith very serious and started reading the Bible a lot. And that's what led to, well, maybe I'll pause on the therapy thing and I'll pursue biblical studies just for my my undergrad and then see where that goes. Mike explained to me some of the early steps during his education that led to an eventual deconstruction process. I had I had two two uh, professors. One uh, taught psychology and human development, and the other taught uh, the Bible as literature. Mm, mm-hmm. And I would say th- those those were kind of the the inciting incidents for me, like recognizing that. Um, as a human grows, right, an individual, so has humankind grown, like there's this developmental process of humankind. And recognizing that simultaneous to starting to read the, the the professor that I did the Bible as literature that I studied under, he would, he would say that he holds to like inerrancy and infallibility, things that that I don't uh, hold to, right? Yeah. But But he also really recognized that the Bible was was first and foremost a, like literature. Mm. And so I think recognizing that the Bible had different kinds of literature written by all of these different people <clears throat> opened a window for me to see that it was um, that there, there were problems in yeah. scripture and also that it was um, totally socially conditioned and developmentally conditioned. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that is kind of where it started. And then moving into seminary and then especially my doctoral programs, you know, really wrestling with the Bible as, as literature, as literary, like artistic expressions by individuals who are socially conditioned. Um, that I think for me, that kind of brought me full circle to, okay, so this text that's been used kind of as a, as a hammer to say, believe these things or else uh, is also socially conditioned, very Western, very American, very white, very male uh, ways of interpreting Christian faith. When Mike went on to get additional schooling, he went very deep into the scriptures. And I studied the rhetorical function of biblical genres. So the Bible has all of these different kinds of literature mm-hmm. and each type of literature rhetor- functions rhetorically in a different way. Like epistolary literature has a different impact than narrative literature, which has mm-hmm. a different impact than um, the, the, the gospel genre. So that's basically what I studied for that. And then um, I, I still had an itch after that degree. And so I ended up um, doing a PhD program at London School of Theology. And my specific thesis was on um, how biblical literary devices make meaning um, through language. Mike shared with me how a lot of his deconstruction process did actually take place during his time as a pastor within the context of the Pearl. This church and its body and its board allowed for him to go through this process. And in turn, it did shape a lot of how they were conducting community there. One aspect he talked about was the idea of doctrines and creeds and what that meant post a reconstruction process. One movement that we made was um, moving away from like a, a super strong 
evangelical doctrinal statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we moved from that to the Apostles' Creed, and we said, um, not not that everybody has to believe the Apostles' Creed, but the Apostles' Creed at least situates us as a a Christian community in in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we went from a doctrinal statement to this creed. Uh, but then we all but then we we continued to realize that not only did the doctrinal statement cause people to disintegrate, like like they hid their questions and they pretended to believe things that they didn't believe. Um, but the but the the creed did that too, because even though we're saying the creed situating us in this story of Jesus, the creed and it's especially the apostles' creed in its earliest form was a catechism for Christian mm-hmm. faith. And um, young believers would go through the Apostles' Creed as a catechism during Lent before they'd get baptized around Easter. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was still a, I believe this, I don't believe that. I think this, I don't think that. And, you know, honestly, how many people believe that Jesus literally descended to the dead and like stole the keys from Satan and came up out of hell victorious, you know? And, and by affirming the Creed, are we insisting that people literally affirm that or are we making space for more metaphorical interpretations and then when you start to do that i feel like we're, we're already doing all kinds of cartwheels to try and create meaning hmm. uh, so that led the board to discussing what does it mean to be christian and and what's required to be a part of this christian community is it cognitive affirmation without hmm. questions or you know problems and where we ended up landing was at least for us at pearl uh the invitation to christian life isn't to several like cognitive points of assent but rather it's simply saying i want to be a part of this community as we try to corporately follow in the ways of jesus Mm, yeah and so we have atheists at pearl uh, we have agnostics at Pearl with, you know, who say like, I'm not really sure what I think about ultimate reality being personal or even existing, but, but I want to abide within this, this family because it feels loving and it's providing a structure that I think might be helpful f- for my life. For a lot of people coming from the evangelical tradition, this might sound a bit shocking. The positions they're taking, the lack of definitive doctrinal statements is all a bit new. But when you encounter the problems that we faced of Christianity that lead to deconstruction, there truly is a lot to wrestle with. I actually became acquainted with Mike because his church, The Pearl, runs a course called Reconstruction. He talks a little bit about that here. So so then it seems like everybody can kind of identify, like, I struggle with this or I have problems with that, or whether it be like eternal damnation or the lack of inclusion for LGBTQ. So so there's that, but then I find that, and the whole reason we tried to put this class together was to, to, to at least start to try to imagine what, um, like kind of resurrected faith could look like, you know, so as opposed to living perpetually in, well, I'm against all of these things and these pieces don't make sense. Well, what are some pieces that could make sense or what could be some helpful, content that could help us to begin reimagining a a Christian tradition that we feel really proud about and that we could actually, Mm. you know, name as as good in the world. And I I really resonate. I don't remember if you recall the article that we talked a little bit about from uh, by Gary Cutting, the philosopher at Notre Dame. Mm. Um, He had an article in the New York Times, you know, maybe a decade ago 
but he was talking about how the primary reason that some of these big religions like Christianity or uh, Mormonism or, you know, whatever, that, that they, they progress begrudgingly because social mores change to the point that their beliefs can no longer be held as, as humane or mm. decent. Human society is going to continue to evolve and develop and social mores are going to become, I hope, more loving and um, focused on equity and equality. And as those things unfold in society, conservative churches are going to be pulled, begrudgingly pulled forward. Yeah. Uh, but, but I want to be part of a Christian movement that joins the social mores and, and is on the front end of saying, anytime we make room for more people, anytime we make room for acceptance, for difference, anytime we're moved by love, not fear, guilt, shame, duty, uh, we're all walking in the, in the ways of Jesus, in the, in the light of the divine who is love. I asked Mike what this sort of reconstruction and this mindset overall might require. Developmentally within human, I think, American consciousness, there's a lack of appreciation uh, for ambiguity and complexity, mm-hmm. uh, which I think reconstruction really requires if deconstruction is kind of dying to something that's bad and reconstruction is like rebirth, Mm -hmm. I think rebirth can look different for different people. So I think for some people, the best rebirth is a non-religious life moving forward. Like they just don't need it. Uh, The way that they're knit together doesn't require it. They're able to find community in ways of, of growing that don't need to be as kind of like holistic by way of like system. Mm-hmm, systemic mm-hmm. thinking like it's just unnecessary so I think that can be a rebirth for some people I think for others uh, some have been so harmed by Christian faith that uh, rebirth if it's going to be a religious tradition it has to be a different religious tradition because mm-hmm. words like the Bible or Jesus or whatever are just too traumatic and triggering yeah yeah and then I think for Pearl you know, the, the place that we're really residing in is, is for those who want to reimagine consequential Christian faith. That's something that we're trying to provide. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but not with any kind of moralistic belief that that's the, the best way. I think the best way is different for each person, whether that be just done with religion, moving to a new religion, or trying to reimagine Christian faith. For me, those are all all of those are, are more beautiful outcomes than perpetual deconstruction or, or cynicism. Mike knows that deconstruction can still be really scary. And uh, he had some great advice for thinking about it differently. Well, I think to people who are deconstructing, I would say uh, that, that the, like the internal tumult and the anxiety that that creates, I would say you know, if at all possible, you can harness all of that and, and look at it with like, like a generous warmth, not, not that you're falling away, but, but that you're entering more deeply into Christian life, Hmm. uh, which for me is, is, is an ongoing wrestling as opposed to like final determination on X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the second thing I would say to people who are in the deconstructing, reconstructing is that reconstructing isn't just replacing all of these answers with these answers. Yeah. In my mind, reconstructing 
Christian faith today is is really a, a just a very different lens through which you you see see the whole thing, as opposed to moving from this answer to this answer. It's really moving from an answer to a way of being in the world. Yeah. You know, that's that's determined to sniff out good and to participate in that good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is going to be so much better than like you had mentioned so often people will say, we, if we could just go back to the first century. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like, well, first of all, we'd all die in a week, right? Because of all the germs and the food and the water. <laughs> so first of all, it would be a short, a short lived experience, but second, <laughs> so much, so misogynistic, so racist, you know, um, terrible. Like we, we, nobody wants to go back to the first century. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so, as you know, so in my mind, the, the, the call of Christian faith is this onward, upward trajectory mm-hmm. of building on the previous generation's goodness. Yeah. One other thing Mike mentioned that was really interesting is how many pastors are actually going through this process and we just don't know it. I think, I mean, I'm friends with a lot of pastors within evangelical traditions and they've all deconstructed and they're wanting to reconstruct, but, you know, they have to they're professional Christians. They get paid to keep their machine, the machine going, Yeah, you know, and uh, I'm just really thankful that, that the board at Pearl has been open to me going on this journey and asking all these questions and mm. um, trying to answer what is good consequential Christian faith in 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I feel really thankful for that. You know, if we're using like spiral dynamics to think about human consciousness and in in spiral dynamics, you have several colors. And when you move from one color to the next, uh, they they kind of use language that says like your your the color you're in starts to wobble. Hmm. Like you move into your new color. And yeah. within spiral dynamic theory, there's nothing that we can do to make somebody's color wobble. Like there's it's just too many th- circumstances that cause that for each person. Yeah, yeah. But once somebody's color starts to wobble, you can help walk them into the next color. Yeah. yeah. So I, I give that, I guess, as a framework to say, I don't have really any conversations with pastors who are solidly in like the previous color, which I would call okay. blue, which emphasizes moralism. Hmm. Um, I would say that the majority of pastors that I engage with, their color is wobbling. Hmm. And so they would say to me, they don't know what they think about eternal damnation. They don't know what they think about infallibility but but what they do know is to engage those issues would put their job in jeopardy and maybe their church in jeopardy and they're wrestling with the risk factor like is it it should i just keep towing the line and perpetuating this thing because i'm getting a paycheck and i've got kids and blah 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 or should i move into my knowing and go for it yeah. And I just find that very few pastors want to go for it. And that's my encouragement is go for it. Like mm. it's on, it's on us until we die to mm. help pull this thing forward and perpetuating violent systems of thought and belief is not helping. Mm. And it's terribly selfish mm. uh, to maintain the status quo when in your knowing you're questioning that, that status quo.
There was one last piece that came up both during the class I took with Mike and in our conversation as well. And I will note it's a little scary to think about, a little bit different, but it also gave me a lot of epistemic humility. For all my life, I had really taken it for granted that we were just going to live forever and oftentimes that was a question of living forever between heaven or hell, but in questioning all these things and looking at the trajectory in the Bible, there actually is some uncertainty surrounding that. Here's Mike on how that comes up with people who are deconstructing. I do think the one, the one sticky piece, I think that's most sticky for everyone is um, the afterlife. One of the things that Christian faith has given us, at least in the conservative evangelical tradition, is absolute certainty on what's going to happen after we die. Mm-hmm. And that's that's hard to give up. Like, that's the last thing I want to give up. Like, I would love to know where I'm going and my best friends are going, and that I'm going to see my grandma again and, you know, yeah. my children. And I want to believe in that because that is so cl- I mean, in some ways, that's the whole thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. the gospel gets you into heaven without a doubt. Yeah. And yeah. so when we when I start to tease out the evolution of afterlife in Jewish and then Christian perspective, yeah. We realize that there it's an evolution yeah. that comes out of issues related to justice and relationship mm-hmm. and that makes after the afterlife more uncertain. I feel like that's the that's the most difficult thing for people reconstructing to handle is if we're looking at it objectively to say I, I, I will never know as certainly as I did in my previous Christian dispensation what is going to happen after I die. As you know from the class, I now feel very comfortable saying um, because justice and relationship seem so important, to ultimate reality as we're seeing in philosophy and psychology and quantum physics mm. uh, i have deep christian hope in a in a conscious afterlife yeah. Uh, yeah and i hold it very lightly because of how i see the afterlife evolve in church history Something I realized during my exploration into deconstruction is how important certainty had become for me. I wanted to know, I wanted cold, hard proof that what I believed was true and correct and verifiable. But as Mike has demonstrated, and what maybe should have been obvious in a place where so much emphasis is placed on faith, is that maybe certainty isn't available to us. Why did it always seem like it was? In this last conversation, I talk with yet another theologian, Melinda Elizabeth Berry. Melinda has an acute awareness of not just the theological problems at play, but I think a lot of the psychological effects of deconstruction, especially seen in her students. Section three. I don't live here anymore. And then from there, um, I went on and got my PhD in 
well, systematic or constructive theology and Christian social ethics at Union Seminary. So, so that's kind of my, um, yeah, a little, a little snapshot of, of my <laughs> life. Well, and I, and I'll add to that um, in terms of my overlap or kind of interaction with folks who identify or are, are more out of the evangelical Christian tradition, a lot of that came in graduate school. Hmm, yeah. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, when I was at Union, um, and especially sort of getting to know people who are uh, at this maybe at this point maybe identify as kind of progressive evangelicals or Jim Wallace type evangelicals. The conversation I had with Melinda was long and incredibly rich. She has a broad knowledge of her Anabaptist Mennonite background, and like Ryan Clausen, shared how this identity, being somewhat ethnic as well as religious, influences her self understanding. Melinda has also seen the deconstruction urge at play and has some really insightful ways of approaching it as a theologian and ethicist. Okay, so now this matters because some of what you're describing that I also see in terms of young adults being like, to hell with this, this is just a bunch of fucked up trauma inducing what's it in the name of religion, blah, 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 I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It is buying into a theory of power that I think is highly problematic. And I'll even call it corrupt. I mean, I am being a little hyperbolic. I'm warming to my theme. My inner preacher is coming out. (laughs) And and it's um, the other thing that happens in nonviolent communication theory is we learn to distinguish between perceptions and feelings. Mm. And it is allowing like the, this, this, this um, trend that we're talking about involves us telling ourselves stories, filling in narrative gaps in ways that we, um, we are not using our critical thinking skills or taking time to reflect on outside of, a, of an echo chamber of people with a similar experience. Now, and, and let me say, I'm very sympathetic to like living in the echo chamber. My interest is in trying to help give young adults more tools to to have a different assessment and tell a different story about what's going on. Yeah. So that they don't, that they don't continue to kind of traumatize themselves. Right. Right. Um, That they, that they start to cultivate a more resilient self. You can already see the kind of psychological and therapeutic approaches that are integrated into Melinda's perspective. She also nods here to the notion of reflective or versus unreflective thinking, and really how there are maybe more tools available in reflectively reviewing the deconstruction process than we may initially believe. Some of what is happening is what uh, this trend that that you've identified where people are reflecting on their experience of growing up in the church and labeling labeling it or naming it, that can be really empowering. And and I'm not interested in sort of gainsaying and saying, oh no, people are labeling things as traumas that aren't traumas new. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. What I'm interested in is how people then work with the story that they're telling about that experience. Yeah, yeah. 
because in my circles, oftentimes that experience of naming, um, growing up in a particular congregation or a particular set of interactions in the church tends to be described as a betrayal. Hmm. Yeah. Right. I feel betrayed. Yeah. Well, so nonviolent communication theory would gently point out that betrayal is a perception. Betrayal is not a feeling. I'm going to take you back momentarily to an earlier part of our conversation where Melinda introduced the theory of nonviolent communication. So my therapist actually introduced me to nonviolent communication theory, Marshall Mm -hmm. Rosenberg, who was a psychologist. So I read the book and then, then years later, I had opportunity to be in a, in a group class where I was learning more about NVC, not just as a kind of communication style or pattern or formula, but as a kind of consciousness, a worldview, mm. a way of, well, and, I, and I mean, for me, it's a spiritual practice that sort of comes alongside Christianity. One of kind of the tenets or one of the big pieces is that um, one of the tricks of the English language is that we can speak a grammatically correct sentence in which we use the word feeling, but we are not actually talking about emotions. Okay, now back to betrayal. So, so what that that sense of betrayal? What is that based on? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So once you once you can, uh, you you then start telling the story. Okay. Well, so how are you feeling about this? What are your needs that are related to this? How come you don't feel seen? Right. right? And, and once people start getting empathy, mm-hmm. that helps them slow down, recognize the judgments that they had been making of others and of themselves, which yeah. is one of the um, kind of distorting lies of dominant culture. Hmm. And what I mean by dominant culture here is I'm talking about kind of cultures of domination and hierarchy. So like, I'm a big, I'm a big um, person. I'm a big patriarchy person. What I mean by that is like patriarchy, patriarchy, patriarchy. There are so (laughs) many things in our culture that come back around to patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of ordering of societies, of households, of nations. Right. In a hierarchical way, a very kind of top down way. So, so a domination culture is a, is a pyramid and domination culture says when something's wrong, it's either your fault or it's my fault. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the higher up you are in the, the order, the pecking order, shall we say, the less likely it is that it's your fault, the more likely it is that it's somebody else's fault so that you're going to blame someone And then the people underneath are going to then start having this automatic response that when something goes wrong, it's my fault. As a, as a Christian theologian who practices nonviolent communication, I would say that Christianity is one tool that we can use to help us understand that this is a lie. Now, I would say that the Christianity I was formed in as that has a kind of commitment to nonviolence. Yeah. Says, yeah, okay, we're kind of caught in this uh, blame and shame dynamic when something goes wrong. Right. But Jesus helps us get out of that by asking, well, what does the other person need from me? What is the other person feeling? How can I make things right? 
This is, this is unconditional love for enemy. Most of us having been shaped by domination culture in which something's either my fault or your fault, and then being taught that Christianity wants us to reach out to our enemies and love them, um, we've kind of lost track of our own feelings and needs. The gospel actually is interested in helping us get beyond this blame and shame game to a place where we acknowledge our feelings and needs hmm. and out of self-acceptance, self-empathy and self-love can extend that empathy, love and acceptance to others. Um, so, so I think what we're hearing is, is a corrective. But the challenge is that we need to, we need to hold it and understand it you know, whether we're in the midst of it and experiencing it or whether we are our kind of shepherd guides and mentors for people who are in this kind of stage, that it is a stage, right? That, there, that there's a stage of development going on here. Yeah, yeah. There's a kind of, 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 of adolescent rebellion that needs guidance right. to mature so yeah. that what is the, the truth of it can actually help serve connection rather than simply saying we have to disconnect from everything that is and everyone who is toxic, which is a good therapeutic strategy in the short term, but it is not sustainable in the long term. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it's schismatic. Right. Right. It ends, it ends up being, I mean, it's, it's a deconstructionist spiral. Yeah rather than a transformationist spiral. Hmm. If I need what I would call strategic space from my parents, from a sibling, from a significant other, from a group of friends who I've grown up with, how do you get that strategic space that is a, a, a space to detoxify in order to allow yourself to heal and to complete the transformation that you're embarking upon that will hopefully move you to a place of being able to be in what, what we call an NVC fuller choice hmm. about what happens in those relationships or yeah. whether you want to re-engage the relationships. Hmm. Melinda introduced me to a couple of concepts within NVC, including jackal speak and giraffe language. So jackal speak being mainly the language of dominant culture that diagnoses and labels and giraffe language being much more compassionate and community oriented. So you'll see that here. This example that you offered of like, there's good deconstruction and bad deconstruction. You've asked the question, well, now wait a second, who gets to diagnose one's deconstructive path as good or bad? I mean, that's a, that's a jackal orientation, right? Mm -hmm. To say that, that one form of deconstruction is good and one form of deconstruction is bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, giraffe language is interested in asking how is deconstruction helping people connect yeah. with each other, with their beliefs, with the community that everybody, like, well, that's another part of NBC that, that we all share some universal human needs. And one of those is for connection. Mm. Like the most basic is for connection. So, yeah. So, so if, if deconstruction is happening as a strategy 
to find more freedom, space, and autonomy, then how is it also helping or how can we help the deconstructive process rebuild a sense of interdependence and connection that is more authentic? What Melinda gets at here is something really at the heart of deconstruction, and that's why it's seen as just a problem. So often people jump to labeling deconstruction without even attempting to understand why it's happening or what it means that someone is asking questions. Because this is this is part of this is part of the challenge. So if we go to internal family systems theory, if your if your rebel parts are leading your deconstructive process and they do not have good company, either externally or internally, then all they're going to do is, is continue the rebellion. And rebellion is about pushing boundaries. Rebellion isn't about finding connection. So that's why, that's why the rebel needs company, right? It needs to be unburdened from feeling responsible for keeping the person going through deconstruction from, from being controlled right. in ways that are traumatizing, abusive, and, um, and disempowering. And, and so this is my communitarian coming out. So like as, having been formed as a Mennonite and as, and as an Anabaptist Mennonite, uh, I am deeply communitarian. What that yeah. means is um, community is always kind of the bigger container. Melinda then discusses how this integration with community extends to all of our reality. And so to go philosophical, right, uh, here at AMBS, we use this integrative approach to theological education. So it's the knowing, being, doing, Bloom's taxonomy. But when we, when we look at that metaphysically, you know, we're getting into epistemology, ontology, and oh, how else would we talk about it? Um, so epistemology is, is knowing, mm-hmm. um, ontology is the being, and the doing would be praxis, maybe, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and that, that these things, you know, when we hold them together, help us tune into the language of the soul or essence, right? right. Again, right. You know, to, to think metaphysically about this. And, and that, that when, when we allow that integration to happen, we start to then under, like, like the, I'm going to Dorothy Zola in terms of, you know, kind of my theological touchstones here. Mm-hmm. The more we understand that that the goal of Christianity is to help us be integrated whole human beings mm. who understand kind of the language of soul. Um, Carolyn Mace is another kind of spiritual teacher here around this, who who says that that Western culture has lost the language or or no longer speaks the language of the soul. That, that it, you know, like if this is what Christianity is intended to do, then, then the closer we get to God, the more these categories or the narrowness of the path, like it falls away. Mm. Um, we, don't, we don't need it in the same way. When Melinda brought this up, it reminded me of something we've heard in an earlier episode about the ground of being and when it shifts. While we might have already kind of perceived that as true or what's going on underneath, I think Melinda's approach is is more positive even. While yes, the process might still be scary, there's goodness to be found in changing our categories. 
So that sometimes what's happening when people embark on a deconstructive journey is I think um, they are surpassing the teacher, Mm. right? That is the, 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 the pastors, the parents, the friends who told them what faith is supposed to be or what it's supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, again, I mean, this, this is a, this is an opportunity to grieve. It's, it's cause it's painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's difficult. Um, but it's also, it's also maybe a cause for celebration because it's a powerful experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a powerful experience to, to get to this place of reconstruction that is also integrative. So there is a possibility of reconstruction if people want it. But what does that look like? Well, if you start with an assumption that Christianity has never been one monolithic thing, that there's always been there have always been multiple expressions of Christianity and that heterodoxy is always going to be kind of part of the, uh, yeah, part of the reality of the church, then some of these differences are, it's easier to embrace them Mm -hmm. or it's easier to say as part of the way I do Christianity I just understand myself to be part of a bigger fabric and, and sure, while what I'm doing may not look Christian to Christian nationalists and what Christian nationalists are doing may not look very Christian to me. Yeah. Like it just, it, it is. So for me, I think, I think part of the praxis of, of a kind of integrative metaphysics is, is just to, yeah, the, to make it a spiritual discipline to accept reality. This point here returns to something Ryan Clausen said in an earlier episode. We can't control what Christianity means or how people express it. We see both good or maybe faithful to the gospel and bad iterations of it. While accepting that reality remains somewhat mystifying, at least to me, and we may always question why it is that Christianity has so many different iterations. It can also be freeing. This led me to some of my final points with Melinda, in which I express my own continuing struggle with the process. Another part of Niebuhr that I think a lot of people misunderstand is that, you know, he, he talks about all these different paradoxes. And one of them is, how is it? that human beings created according to God's image and likeness can like undo creation. Whoa. That is part of the human condition. And we can't figure out how to put the nuclear nuclear bombs back in the box. But this is actually my biggest problem right now. Yeah, there is this sense of responsibility that we have. We see it, you know, in Genesis of like, okay, go, you know, um, fill, fill the earth and kind of take care of the earth and kind of given responsibility and the fact that we are, we work, we labor, you know, but then can we trust ourselves in mm-hmm. our choices and being responsible? And that also goes back to Genesis in that when we trusted ourselves, we, you know, sinned or, you know, we took the fruit and that, that separation that came from that. Um, and this is a tension for me. Like, I really don't know how to manage it because in some ways it's like, yes, it, there's so much to, to say about, 
you know, we're given responsibility, let's take it, you know, even things with the parables and the talents, things like that. But then kind of the lean not on your own understanding, you know, and I don't know how to reconcile that at this point in time. And I feel that tension in a very big way of, I think that is part of also the deconstruction urge is like, well, I don't even know how to trust myself. This doesn't make sense. There's some overlap here with, um, you know, kind of the, the feminist poet, Audre Lorde, um, black feminist, lesbian poet, um, prototype of womanist theory, where she says that the masters, you know, you, you cannot use the master's tools to rebuild the master's house. She's in this debate with white feminists um, about what, fem like what constitutes feminist work, and kind of going back to, to what you were saying about humans and labor and um and i and i would say you know one of the ways that i read the story in genesis with the tree and the fruit is um is is this story is telling us something about curiosity mm. creativity um and and one of the ways that the human um desire and urge and instinct to create takes shape so that for humans, I mean, and, and we would see this, we can see this in, uh, among other creatures too, but, but reproduction uh, is not the only way that creativity expresses itself, hmm. right? Or, or, you know, sort of this generative capacity. So there are lots of animals that build homes, like, you know, beavers build dams yeah. or, you know, birds build different kinds of nests. Uh, and have adapted different kinds of strategies and physiology in order to um, to build themselves homes. So, so when when it comes to this meaning making stuff that we're talking about, philosophically, philosophically, theologically, ethically, which also gets at the knowing, being, doing stuff. By the mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. um, what kind of houses do we want to live in? And many of us, again, you know, when we grow up in the church, we like we we and literally we lived in our parents' homes. And yeah. if if and 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 then depending on kind of the quality of your childhood, maybe you lived in someone else's home, or maybe the church became your church family. That became kind of your metaphorical home. Mm -hmm. And and so then there also comes a point when. You know, all creatures send their young out to live on their own and humans among the creatures shelter their young longer than anybody, you know, any other creature. And, and I always thought growing up that I would grow up and, and want to, you know, buy my parents' house or like live there after my right. parents lived there. Right. I was, I mean, I just, I just thought that. Mm -hmm. But now I have no desire to live in this home. Yeah. And, um, and as, as we're getting it closer and closer to being ready to sell to someone else, I'm also kind of surprised by how my sentimental nostalgic attachment to it has shifted and changed. Hmm. There will be grief and loss when, when my parents don't live there anymore, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's just true, but it's not going to be nearly as devastating as I thought mm. it was going to be or imagined it would be, which was why I wanted to, you know, well, I'll just take it because then, then we don't have to, I don't have to feel any of the sadness. Right, right. But this, so, so this deconstruction thing 
is a version of moving out of the, the homes that were built for us. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or it's it part of the process of finding a different place to live, creating mm -hmm. a different place for us to live. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes we have to build that home using different tools and materials. I don't think this journey has provided any sort of definitive prescription for what a deconstruction process is supposed to look like. I think initially maybe I wanted it to, but I'm glad how it changed in the process. Deconstruction is tough. It's deeply personal, confusing, and very frightening. If I could say anything to those around me deconstructing, I would say, the journey is not over, and there is so much to explore. Hopefully this project has given you a little taste of that. So now I wonder, what tools will you use to build the house where you plan to live, wherever that might be? Who is there to build alongside you? And how can this new experience lead to more goodness instead of less? In many of my interviews, I asked for the advice of my interviewees as well. I want to leave you with a few of these thoughts. Section 4. For the road ahead. If you're leaving church because you feel like there isn't a place for you, that's not just you saying, I don't like church, yeah. you know, like I don't like oatmeal. That's saying that you feel profoundly alienated or that you feel like there isn't a place for you in this setting. And yeah. the church should be listening to that. Mm. So um, I say to nuns and duns, if you don't think you can believe in God, that's fine. Um, what do you think you can believe in? And nine times out of 10, they come around to the kind of values that I think we should attribute to a loving God. So deconstructing your faith, I don't, I think that's probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. If your faith is what you've learned in Sunday school, um, yeah. if you don't deconstruct that faith, that's, you know, we can't, you, you, you give milk to a child, but right. you got to move on to solid foods. And if all you're doing is drinking milk, Paul says, that, you know, you can't stay a child. You have to grow up in the faith and start yeah. eating solid foods and, and coming to terms with these difficulties that, that aren't easily solved and in some cases aren't solved at all. Uh, I think it, it's just more straightforward to find sort of broader community of believers in the like universal church to mm -hmm. confirm. Like, I don't know how else to put it. Like, you're not crazy. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get, I get so many messages from people on Twitter uh, just saying like, you know, thank you. Like I've been thinking this for a while and like yeah. just, just to find other people who are articulating my sense of like how bizarre and messed up the situation is, is, is yeah. like really uh, helpful to my, to my health. So I would yeah. love to be helpful to, people in the future that are deconstructing you know insofar as like 
not shying away. There's a lot of deconstruction stuff out there right now because people have found it really traumatizing to leave <laughs> to leave a non-deconstructed world. It's really traumatizing. It's really, really hard. Um, there's an enormous cost that comes with leaving this, the security and the, 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 the experience of, of safety and knowledge of, um, you know, a Loctite kind of worldview that does not uh, allow one to um, explore any of the questions that deconstruction requires. I think I want to acknowledge and just like honor the journey that people are on. I think that people who are deconstructing very often get vilified or, you know, not taken seriously or treated as like people who just weren't serious enough about their faith. And I just, I, just, I don't know. Yeah, I just like to honor the people who, who are honest strugglers. If I could go back to the woman terrified of the dark void of doubt she felt all around her, I would say, you are allowed to ask these questions. You are allowed to follow where they lead. You will not end up alone. You will end up free.